Our scripture reading before the lesson is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. 1 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 13. And it reads, You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we have behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. It became a fairly regular occurrence over the last year that our song preceding the lesson was directly connected to the lesson because we were reading in sync and all of our reading in sync uh, schedule had to do with a particular theme song. Uh, but now that that's over, it's not maybe as regular because sometimes it just uh, isn't the case that maybe those songs are connected. But as it turns out tonight, the song that Aaron led before our lesson, Give Me the Bible, is directly connected to the things that we're talking about, just out of happenstance. The question for you this evening is, can I trust my Bible? And perhaps those of us sitting here in the audience this, this evening might think, well, of course I trust my Bible. Why wouldn't I? In fact, why would I even be here if I didn't trust my Bible? And, and why do we need to spend time reminding ourselves of this? Well, it may be the case that there are some here that are forced to be here and they don't really want to be here. Maybe this is a lesson that they need to hear. But it's also good for us from time to time to hear and think about as Christians that have been Christians for many years. Because not only does it help us remind ourselves why it is we do the things that we do week in and week out and, and think about following God and, and trusting exactly what He says and what the Bible says, but also because it's helpful for us as we live in an increasingly secular world, an increasingly uh, evolutionary uh, type of world that, that focuses and believes in an evolutionistic mindset, that we are ready to give a defense, that we're ready to answer the question, can I really trust what the Bible says? As you think about our scripture reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2, and what Paul commended the church at Thessalonica in their response uh, to, the, to the reception of the truth of the gospel. In chapter 2 and verse number 13, Paul says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. They welcomed it, they received it as though it truly was the Word of God. And so our question for us this evening, is our Bible reliable? Is our Bible trustworthy? Does the Bible come from God? Or is it just a mere fabrication of man? Is it something that comes directly from man? In regards to the question, can I trust my Bible? We might ask the question, can we really trust anything these days? As you think about the, the age in which we live in and fake news and, and, and fact checkers and all of these different things being a constant refrain, the question that everyone wants to know is, what or who can I really trust? 
Ultimately, at some point, you do have to come to a conclusion about what is true and trustworthy and what is not. You may choose to decide one day that you don't trust the Bible. Well, why is that? If that's the case, who or what do you trust? In answer to the question, can I trust my Bible, there's really only two options. I can trust and I can choose to trust the Bible, or I can choose to trust in something else. We cannot remain neutral on this. We have to make a decision for ourselves. You may say, well, no, I don't really have to trust anyone or anything. But to that, I would say that you are mistaken. Your whole life revolves around the need to trust and to make decisions about what it is that you trust. The decisions you've made to to trust certain things are all based on evidence and experience to see those things are trustworthy. I have a new daughter that pretty soon is going to begin to try to crawl and eventually will try to walk, and, and her whole world is going to be based upon the trust factor of knowing that the step that she takes and puts that foot on the ground and the way that she balances her body, that when she does that, gravity is going to do what it does and that her muscles are going to do what they should do and that she'll be able to walk. Those of us that drive in a car or will be soon, when you put ourselves in the driver's seat, we put an inordinate amount of trust every day in the fact that our brakes will stop our car when we get to a stoplight. And we trust these things because we've seen that those things are factually true and that it works and that it's proven, it's reliable. And so when we think about those things and we ask the question, can I trust my Bible? The answer to the question should be based on what are some reasons that the Bible is truly trustworthy? You know, there are some in the world that that allege that the Bible is not trustworthy. They say that the Bible is full of contradictions or inaccuracies. They say that things must have been lost in translation because of various textual variants or the fact that the original documents are not with us any longer. Or or they've been told that the ethics of the Bible are are, are archaic. Or perhaps you've heard that people say that, that God is corrupt or morally evil or that Jesus didn't really even exist. Before we answer the question, what are some things or reasons for which the Bible is trustworthy, I want us to just spend just a few minutes considering that there are contradictions that are alleged about the Bible. But in answer to those allegations, consider these five areas in which these contradictions can really just be chalked up to misunderstandings. Misunderstandings. Consider first and foremost that some people will point to Matthew chapter 7 verse 21 and compare that to Acts chapter 2 verse 21 and and one says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved whereas the other says that not everyone that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that it's a contextual misunderstanding that those individuals that say that they are truly calling on the name of the Lord but aren't actually doing what God wants them to do and aren't actually fulfilling their responsibilities and obligations, that their breath is wasted, that they're not actually truly calling on the name of the Lord. Whereas those that truly seek after the things of God and do what God wants them to do, if they call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. What about cultural misunderstandings? In Mark chapter 15, verse 25, some will compare that to John chapter 19, verses 14 through 15 in which there is allegedly some discrepancy about when it was that that Jesus was in trial. 
John chapter, 14, uh, John chapter 19, verses 14 through 15 says that Jesus was still in trial at the sixth hour, while Mark said that he was crucified at the third hour. So how do we reconcile this? We need to realize that the writers were writing to a different audience, that Mark was writing to a primarily Jewish audience, whereas John's audience was primarily Gentile. And so a new day for the Romans or the Gentiles began at midnight, as it does for us today, whereas a new day for the Jews began at a different time. It began in the evening at what we would call 6 p.m. John has Pilate handing Jesus over for crucifixion at 6 a.m., and Mark has Jesus on the cross three hours later at 9 a.m., for example, in the third hour. In fact, John begins his whole account of Jesus' audience with Pilate by noting that it was early morning. And so when we look at these two and we say, well, one says the third hour and one says the sixth hour, how, how do we compare this? Well, it's a cultural misunderstanding because one was written to a Jewish audience and one was written to a Gentile audience. What about a cartographical misunderstanding? Some people would say, well, in, in uh, John chapter 4, Jesus was in Galilee, and then in the beginning of John chapter 5, it says that he went up to Jerusalem. But if you look at a map, Galilee is north of Jerusalem. How is it that Jesus went up to Jerusalem, some might allege? Well, if you know the geography of the lay of the land, Jerusalem is up on a hill. It was elevated. And so Jesus literally went up into Jerusalem. Though he went south from Galilee to Jerusalem, he climbed up that hill, as it were. To, to be there. And so it's just a cartographical misunderstanding, a map misunderstanding, if you will. There are also circumstantial misunderstandings. Think about Matthew chapter 27, verse 5, and Acts chapter 1, verse 18, in which Matthew 27 tells us that Judas hung himself, but Acts chapter 1, 18 tells us that he fell headlong and his bowels burst forth. So which one? How did Judas die? Well, it really just boils down to after Judas hung himself, Certainly, as perhaps his body decayed and he fell down from wherever he had hung, the, his bowels burst forth. It's just thinking about the circumstances in which the writer is addressing those things. It's not a contradiction. In fact, any alleged contradiction, can be, if it can be addressed with a rational explanation, is not a contradiction at all. If there's a, a plausible reasoning for those contra alleged contradictions, it's really not a contradiction at all. But then finally, the chronological misunderstanding between Luke chapter 24, verse 9, and Mark chapter 16, verse 8. After the women discovered the empty tomb of Jesus, one account says that they returned and told the others, whereas the other one says that they told no one. Perhaps it was the case, as we said, a plausible explanation was just that initially they didn't tell anyone, but as soon as they got back, they did. Or perhaps they didn't tell anyone what they saw with regard to the angels, but they, they relayed the information that the tomb was empty. And so there are a plethora of, of reasonings and examples of things that can be given in regards to these alleged contradictions, and they're not really contradictions at all. So those are some reasons why people question and wonder if they can really trust their Bible. But considering that these are really just misunderstandings, we need to realize that there are many reasons why we can trust the Bible. First and foremost, consider that scientifically the Bible is cutting edge. It's cutting edge. In other words, it's at the front line of discovery, if you will. That if people would look at the Bible, they would see that the Bible knows things, or the writers wrote down things about science 
The Bible's not a science textbook, by the way, but it has information that relates to science that people didn't discover until many, many years later, sometimes even thousands of years later. These things can only be explained supernaturally. That the Bible is supernaturally present and it can be proved by the fact that it's scientifically cutting edge. Consider just a few examples. The Bible knew things, as we said, about science before they were ever discovered by man, such as sanitation practices in Leviticus chapter 15, verses 4 through 27, talks about the importance of bathing and clothes washing. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 12 through 13, the importance of separating yourself from human waste and not keeping that around, and the importance of of doing that for the the sake of staying clean and not allowing uh, yourself to become sick because of those things. Think about what takes place later on in the middle, medieval ages with regard to the black, the black plague and them taking their excrement and tossing it into the street. And because of those things that a lot of people ended up with, as we said, the black plague. If they would have just listened to the Bible, they would have seen things that were important for them to do in a society. But not only sanitation and hygiene, but also disease transmission. You think about in Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45, that lepers were to cover their upper lip as they approached someone and said unclean. Why was this the case? Because this would have been a a respiratory spreading type of disease, much as we've thought about in the last year. And and the importance of perhaps at least keeping our distance for that sake in, in those types of situations. But not only that, in Leviticus chapter 14, verses 8 through 9, the importance of the quarantining of diseased. As, as I've looked at these verses in years past, the word quarantine never stood out to me as much as it does now, right? As we've experienced quarantine. But as we think about the fact that the Bible emphasized those things thousands of years ago, even the quarantine that needs to take place after touching dead bodies in Leviticus chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, and, and as well as Numbers chapter 19, and verse 16. Why is that the case? Well, an obstetrician learned later on as they went from dead bodies to pregnant women that they were passing diseases from these dead bodies. And they learned that they shouldn't do that. They needed to wash their hands, right? This was discovered thousands of years later in Europe. If they would have just followed what the Bible said thousands of years beforehand, they wouldn't have endangered these women. Think about the water cycle in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Solomon says, The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full, because to the place the streams come from, there they return again. Think about the paths of the sea in Psalm chapter 8 and verse number 8. Whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea, the psalmist said, these paths weren't confirmed until the year 1860 by Matthew Fontaine Murray, thinking about the fact that the the psalmist wrote about those hundreds and hundreds of years before they were ever physically discovered by man. And then think about Leviticus chapter 12, verse number 3, with regard to blood clotting and the circumcision that was to take place of the Jewish boys on the eighth day. Why was it to take place on the eighth day? Because the scientists later figured out in the year 1872 as we think about what takes place in blood clotting, there's a particular enzyme named prothrombin that is responsible for, along with vitamin K, that causes blood clotting or coagulation. But guess what? On the eighth day of a human's life, vitamin K levels are higher than they ever will be or ever had been. And so as you think about the procedure that took place under Mosaic Law, 
there was an important reason for why God asked them or required them to do it on the eighth day. Guess? Happenstance? Certainly not. This is inspired by God. Think about the circle of the earth in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, as, as Isaiah talks about this in, in reference to the fact that the globe that we are on is a globe and not a flat earth, that, that it's a spherical entity. For many years, people sailed the oceans thinking that the earth was flat. The Bible knew better. Scientifically, it is cutting edge. We could say things more about physics and how the Bible is consistent with it. We could say things about catastrophism and the fact that, that the flood gives us a worldview by which to look at the world around us and understand why things are the way they are today. And they can give us a context and framework by, by which to look at things. But we don't have the time for that. Consider next that not only is it scientifically cutting edge, it's also literarily extraordinary. Literarily, it's extraordinary. It's unlike any other piece of literature. Consider 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Peter says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. You think about what we have revealed to us today, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, that all Scripture is inspired by God, that we have literally the words of God penned for us on behalf of God by men of this world, and that despite that, I can trust my Bible, even though it's been scrutinized by scholars for countless of centuries and it, and it has survived countless attacks, I can trust my Bible because it has a unified message across 66 books. These 66 books were written over the course of over 1,600 years. And there's some about 40 different authors, depending on who perhaps wrote the book of Hebrews. Shepherds, kings, scholars, fishermen, prophets, military generals, cupbearers and priests, and more were writers of this collection of writings written in three different languages, in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And with all of these variables... There's one common thread of purpose. And as we said, zero credible contradictions. It's unlike any other piece of literature that has ever existed. I can trust my Bible because it has a unified message that spans so many authors and so many years. But not only that, I can trust it because it contains remarkable prophecy. It contains remarkable prophecy. Imagine being able to predict who in 200 years or so, is going to conquer the United States, perhaps. But not only who is going to conquer the United States, but who the leader of that particular nation actually is. And not just who, what family he comes from, but his exact name. Did you know this happens in Scripture? You think about in Isaiah. Isaiah described how God would in the future destroy the kingdom of Babylon. In Isaiah chapter 13, verse 19. And he wrote as if it had already occurred, as though it was so certain that this would be the case. Isaiah declared Babylon would fall. He then prophesied that Babylon would fall, not just the fact that they'd fall, but that they would fall to the Medes and Persians, and that the ruler of that entity was a man named Cyrus. It calls him by name in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28 through 45, verses 1 through 7. Think about the remarkable prophecy that takes place there. And that's just one of countless prophecies through Scripture. 
How could that take place if this Bible, if this collection of writings that we have before us was not from God? It truly is a literary, extraordinary, extraordinarily amazing piece of literature. I can trust my Bible because compared to other historical documents, it far and away is the most consistent and well represented across manuscripts and copies and replications of the original autographs. Think about the fact that there are currently 643 remaining manuscripts of Homer's Iliad, written in the mid-8th century B.C., and the earliest remaining partial copy is from the 3rd century A.D. There are only eight copies of historical accounts from Greek historian Herodotus, written in 450 B.C. There are, uh, with regard to Josephus, who lived around 70 A.D., the earliest remaining copy of his historical account is 480, and we only have nine of his total manuscripts. Roman historian Tacitus, we only have two of his manuscripts. And all of these historical records, historical accounts, are not looked at with shadows of doubt cast upon them. But the Bible is, even though it has some 5,700 or more manuscripts, all of which have about a 99.5% consistency across each other, as you compare them to one another. And those those that 0.5% can really just be chalked up to scribal errors. That as they wrote these things down, maybe they missed a letter, or maybe they missed a word, or they duplicated a word. But even through those errors, it doesn't change the meaning of the text. We can trust that this piece of literature that we have is from God. We can trust in it. It's extraordinary. Consider next that not only is it scientifically cutting edge and literarily extraordinary, but it's historically accurate. It's historically accurate. We've already talked about the fact that Isaiah prophesied Cyrus's conquering of Babylon. But think about even beyond that. It doesn't hide the faults of many of its protagonists. You think about Moses and David and Peter, how these individuals, though they were important followers of God, they were shown to be people that had shortcomings. Even think about Judas, who was a follower of Jesus that was in his inner circle, and yet he turned on the Christ. If you were writing that and you were trying to convince someone maybe to follow Christ, maybe our man-made thinking might lead us to say, well, let's just leave that detail out. But you know, God, He wants us to see everything and be transparent about how history unfolded. It's honest with us. But not only that, I can trust my Bible because its history is always accurate. It's accurate in regards to people and places and leaders and time periods. Just three, three examples. Consider the Hittite tablets, who until 1906, there was no extra-biblical evidence, that is, evidence outside of the Bible, that there was ever a nation of people that was named the Hittites until an archaeologist, Hugo Winkler, visited a city in Turkey and where he found it some 10,000 tablets and announced that the Hittites had been found, that there was now archaeological evidence of their existence. Whereas for years, people questioned the Bible because they said, well, there's no other records of the Hittites. How can this truly be that the Bible is accurate when then all along, archaeologically, there's discoveries that prove otherwise? What about the David inscription in which the Tel Dan stela, which is just a stone slab, contains what's known as the Tel Dan inscription that includes the phrase House of David on, its in, on the inscription. And it provides the first historical evidence of King David outside of the Bible. 
The army and king who erected the stele in the mid-8th century claims to have defeated the king of Israel and the king of the house of David. This was discovered in 1993. And there was questions about whether or not David existed truly outside of the Bible before that. But here we find, again, archaeological evidence. What about the Taylor Prism? The Taylor Prism was discovered in 1830, and it contains the victories of Sennacherib himself, the Assyrian king who had besieged Jerusalem in 701 B.C., He did this during the reign of King Hezekiah. In fact, on this particular prism inscribed are the words, Fear of my greatness terrified Hezekiah. He sent to me tribute, 30 talents of gold, 800 talents of silver, precious stones, ivory, and all sorts of gifts, including women from his palace. And if you look at 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 13 through 15, the Bible corroborates this archaeological find. There are records that show that the Bible is historically accurate. We don't need to worry about whether or not we can trust our Bible. We know that it's scientifically cutting edge. Literarily, it's extraordinary. Historically, it's accurate. Consider as we close that ethically, it is supreme. Ethically, it is supreme. This perhaps is one of the most, if not the most, compelling arguments for the Bible. Think about the fact that its instruction yields the best results on earth and eternity. We can look at its moral expectations and the things that it requires of people and say we recognize that because of of these rules and expectations that God places on society that that it helps us avoid sickness, it helps us avoid pain or or some heartache, but it doesn't promise us that we're going to have a painless life or, or that we're going to make millions and millions of dollars. But ultimately we can look at what comes as a fruit of that type of life and see that it is a hope-filled life as compared to other ways of life. But not only that, it calls humanity to the highest ethic. It calls humanity to the highest ethic. Whereas the world would say, you don't need to treat your enemies fairly. Jesus says, love your enemies. Whereas the world would say, do what's best for you. Follow after your heart. Do what you want to do. Be true to yourself. The Bible says, Serve others, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, as Christ did. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, as we've talked before, is this ethic that is higher than other ethics in that some have said, don't do to others what you don't want done to you. But Jesus says, in a proactive sense, whatever you want men to do to you, do ye even also unto them. Don't just refuse to treat people poorly instead treat them well treat them as you want to be treated and offer yourself as a sacrifice a living sacrifice devote yourself to god live for the lord and not for your own self again so contrary to what the world says and you see the fruit of this you see the result of this if the world truly lived as the bible called us to live problems and heartache would disappear Yes, we, we would still deal with, with disease and pain uh, of, of death and things like that. But as we, with regard to sin, if people were truly holy and sanctified as God called them to be, we wouldn't have to deal with, with people taking other people's lives. We wouldn't have to deal with people taking other people's possessions. We wouldn't have to deal with going through this life alone because we'd have a family in the church. The Bible ethically is supreme because it provides for us everything that we need all things that pertain to life and godliness second peter chapter one verse number three 
And think about this as we close. This message is not about money. You think about the world that we live in. Money is the driver. Pretty much everything in this world is about money, isn't it? How can I make more? How can I attain more? Or we find the things that are corrupt, these entities that are corrupt, usually it's because of money. But what does the Bible teach? The Bible calls us to lay not our treasures on earth, but to lay up our treasures in heaven. To not worry about the things of this world that the Lord our God will provide for us. And that as Paul writes to to Timothy, he says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The Bible doesn't call us to strive after physical things. The Bible calls us to strive after the spiritual, to focus on it, to lay our treasures up in heaven. It's the best way of life. It's so contrary to what the other things of the world call for people to do. And so as you think about the question, can I trust my Bible? I would ask you, don't ignore these mountains of evidence that are before your face this evening because of a few molehills of doubt that might exist in your mind. You know, some people say, but what about this? Or what about this? Or what about that? And they go and they hide behind those little molehills to the point that they cannot see these mountains of evidence before them. But if you would truly but just accept these thoughts tonight, you could trust your Bible. Maybe you have lost your trust in the Bible. Maybe you haven't been doing what it's asking you to do because you've been doubting. I want you to study these things more with us. We would encourage you to walk the aisle in a moment and tell us, we want to study more. We want to know more about these things so that my faith can be strengthened. Maybe you are not a Christian and because of the things we've talked about tonight, they've helped you to see that the Bible is trustworthy and that God is worthy to follow. If there's one of those things that might address a need in your life, we'd ask that you come as together we stand and as we sing.